Alright, if you have your Bible, go ahead and turn to Revelation chapter 12. That's where we left off last week. We'll try and finish where we, uh, where we started there and go into chapter 13. I had these little quizzes prepared last week, but I didn't get them printed in time. That's alright. We'll do it today. Brittany's passing them out, but um, yeah, if you don't have one, I'm going to just read these off, okay, instead of y'all just doing them yourself. And what I wanted to do with this last week, we were right at the halfway point of Revelation, and we're still right about there. And so we've got about 13 more classes, and then we'll be done. But I wanted to kind of walk through this, remind us of some of the things we've covered already, and also hopefully encourage you with what you know about the book of Revelation and kind of cement some things in your mind. So I think this is 15 questions, if I'm right. Yeah, 15. All right, so who wrote the book of Revelation? Paul, Peter, John, or Apollos? John, okay, good. Who is the audience of Revelation? A, the church in Jerusalem. B, the seven churches in Asia. C, the seven churches of Achaia. Or D, the church in Macedonia. B, the seven churches in Asia. All right, number three. How are God's people protected from destruction? A, they are not protected. B, they are taken up to heaven. Or C, they are sealed. C, they are sealed. All right, number four, true or false? According to Revelation, God's people can pray to God, desiring vengeance on those who persecute them and for the wicked to be punished for their wrongdoing. True or false? True. All right, number five, the things in Revelation were written in the first century but would not come to pass for another couple of thousand years. True or false? False. Somebody said, true, true or false? False. False. Ms. Rhonda's looking at me like, what? I don't know what her answer was. False is right. False is right. All right. Yeah, John said several times, these things must shortly come to pass, right? And so that's that. Number six, the most helpful tool in studying the book of Revelation is A, a knowledge of New Testament Greek, B, a thorough understanding of ancient culture, C, knowledge of and familiarity with the Old Testament, or D, a photographic memory. See, yeah, and I put most because I guess all of those will help you except for probably me, but the others are pretty good. Number seven, who was worthy to open the scroll? A, John, B, the mighty angel, C, Jesus, the lion of the tribe of Judah, or D, no one? C, Jesus, the lion of the tribe of Judah. I don't know how it was when you were in school, but when I was, they said, um, when in doubt, go and see. <laughs> Number eight, Number eight, 1260 days, a times, time and a half a time, and three and a half years refer to what in Revelation? A, a precise time period. B, the time before Jesus returns. C, a limited a limited time of testing, trial, and persecution. Or D, no one knows for sure. C, a limited time of testing. That's going to come up again in chapter 13. So the devil will have power for these. I didn't put it on here, but in this list you could also add 42 months. And so that will come up. Number nine. The 144,000 in Revelation represent A, a specific number of especially saved individuals, B, all the saved and redeemed from the Old Testament, C, the redeemed church of Jesus Christ, or D, a symbolic number of special angels. Same. We got low on that one. Which one? Same. When in doubt, C. Right? This is C. Yeah. Um, we talked about this when we covered Revelation 7. Of course, the redeemed from the Old Testament will be saved, but I think what John's Queuing in on, especially because he says they've been washed in the blood of the Lamb, are Christians that have been martyred and have come out of persecution. Number 10, how many trumpets are sounded in Revelation? A5, B6, C10, D12, or E7? E7. 
All right, number 11. What is John told to do with the scroll presented to him in chapter 10? A, write on it. B, eat it. C, put it in a special place. Or D, share it with the churches. Eat it. Eat it. What does that mean for John to eat it? What was God saying? This was the lesson Neil taught three weeks ago. What, what does it mean for John to eat the scroll? Digest it, yes. Consume the message. And then he's to proclaim it to the nation. Number 12. The two witnesses in chapter 11 represent A, Elijah and Moses, B, Enoch and Elijah, C, the Old and New Testament, D, the Church of Jesus Christ, or E, God the Father and God the Son. I got B, Enoch and Elijah. I think we went with D. I think we went with D. Yeah, I think it's D. I believe it's D. Y'all don't have to agree with me. That's okay. You can be wrong if you want. <laughs> Number 13. God sends the plagues and punishments throughout the book in order to A, kill the Romans, B, punish the church for their sins, C, punish Rome and get her to repent, or D, tell us about how the world will end. C. And a lot of people miss this, but yes, the plagues are designed to get them to repent. Two more. 14. True or false? The book of Revelation provides readers with a step-by-step outline of how the world will end. False. Are you sure? True or false? False, yes, but most people believe that. As you start getting towards the end of the book, people think this is John's detailed description. Now, here's the thing. John says things at the end of the book that I believe are true about the end of the world. That's just not his primary focus. He wrote a book to comfort seven churches that were undergoing great persecution. All right, number 15. And we're not going to do three, but maybe we could get some people to say one thing. Maybe. What are three things you've learned from Revelation so far that you didn't know before this class started? So maybe one thing. You don't have to give me three, but what's something you learned so far in Revelation that you didn't know before the class started? Okay, raise your hand if you know everything already about the book of Revelation. Let's do it that way. What's something you learned about the book of Revelation before that you didn't know before the class started? I've learned that most of the things I've been taught about it Okay, so maybe we learned some things that weren't correct before, and in studying and in hindsight, some things have been corrected. Anything else? The number of references to the Old Testament. The number, the number of references. Oh, okay, great. Yeah, the number of references to the Old Testament. I think that's important. And John never, by the way, quotes directly from the Old Testament, which is interesting, but he does allude to it some 300 times or so. Anybody else? All right, Revelation chapter 12. Let's notice verses 7 through 11. We'll pick up here. This is, remember, the woman has a child. The child is caught up to heaven. And the devil, as a result, wants to persecute the woman. He can't get to the child, but he wants to persecute the woman and her offspring. Revelation 12. I'm going to read 7 down through 12. It says, Now war arose in heaven. Michael and his angels were fighting against the dragon. The dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated. There was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who was called the devil, and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come, for the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. 
They've conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they love not their lives even until death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath because he knows that his time is short. So if you don't have your handout from last week, you'll just have to wait till we get to chapter 13. That's the handout you have today. But Revelation 12 talks about the devil. And we talked about this some last week. I don't believe this is the context for like the devil's original being cast out of heaven. But it's talking about what happens as he's persecuting the church. 2 Peter 2, 4 and Jude 6 do speak of angels being cast down. At some point, there's a war in heaven between... Michael and his angels and the dragon and his angels, that's in verse 7, and the dragon and his angels fight back. But what happens to them at the end of verse number 8? Or verse 8 says they're what? Yeah, they're defeated and they're no more. And so we learn from this that the devil can't win over the child. He can't win over Michael the archangel. He can't win against God's people at all. And then there's these descriptions of the devil. If you notice in verse 9, he's the great dragon. And I believe this is right where we left off last week. He's the great dragon, the ancient serpent who is called the devil. He's Satan. He's the deceiver of the whole world. And he is also referred to as the accuser of our brethren. Um, the New Testament uses other terms to describe the devil as well. He's the god of this world, 2 Corinthians 4, 3 and 4. He's a lion, 1 Peter 5 and verse 8. He's the evil one, Matthew 13 and verse 19. On one occasion, Jesus called him the strong man. Jesus says, you can't enter a strong man's house and spoil his goods unless you first bind the strong man. He's an angel of light. He binds people. And based on the Bible's description about the devil, what can we know about him? What do we know about the devil based on all of this information? He doesn't intend anything good for us. He doesn't intend anything good for us. What else? What's his current state? He's already defeated. Look at Hebrews chapter 12. I mean chapter 2, excuse me. Hebrews chapter 2. And let's get somebody to read Hebrews 2, 14, and 15. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Okay, so Hebrews 2.14 says that Jesus took on flesh just like we do so that he might deliver us from the power of death and that he might destroy the one who had the power over death, that is the devil. So when did Jesus destroy the devil? Resurrection. At his resurrection. So what do we make of like 1 Peter 5 Is the devil destroyed? Yes or no? Is he defeated and destroyed? Yes? Yes? But in what sense, why are we still fighting him? Because 1 Peter 5, 8 says he's still, after the resurrection of Jesus, 1 Peter 5, 8, Peter says he's a roaring lion walking about seeking whom he may devour. And Ephesians 6 says we've got to overcome his strategies. <coughs> Ephesians 6, 10, and 11. Russell? The only way he can hurt God is to separate us from him. Okay. So it's to get God. Only way to get to him is by hurting the ones God loves. He's trying to hurt as many, get as many of us as he can to hurt God as much as he can. Yeah, I think that's right. I think the Book of Job bears that out, and John will say something about that later on in Revelation 12. I'm sort of asking a little bit of a different question, though. It's more about how is he able to even still try and do that if passages like Hebrews 2:14 explicitly say he's been destroyed and defeated. Like, why are we still engaged in battle against him, even though he can't really harm us because we've got 
Christ, but if he's defeated and destroyed, how does he still wield an influence? Why is there still a need to combat the devil? <laughs> okay. He's defeated, but he's not confined to hell Okay. He still has freedom to do Yeah. As Vivian says, he's defeated but not confined to hell. This is going to come up in Revelation 20 where John says he's, he's bound for a thousand years and then he's let out and released to do temporary damage to those that allow him. So the devil is defeated, but we still have to do battle against him. I think it's something like yesterday there were some football games on, right? And some of the scores were pretty embarrassing, right? Some of the scores by like the third quarter, like 40 to zero. If you were at the game, you know pretty much the game is over, but you still have to do what? still got to play the game out. They're not going to just call the game and say, okay, everybody can go home. you still got to play it out. you still got to run. And if you're not careful, even on the winning side, you still could get hurt. You still could be embarrassed. You still could fail to do your job. And there's a sense in which, there's a sense in which in Christ, the game's over. It's already been blown out. But we've got to play to the zeros are on the clock. We've got to play it out. The devil's defeated, but we still have business to do with him and against him. Revelation 12 goes on to talk about the fact that heaven rejoices in verse 10. Notice that. Rejoices at the defeat of the devil. John writes, And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come for the accuser of our brothers have been thrown, has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before our God. People wonder about who this is doing this praising. It could be the angels. could be the martyrs that are in heaven and that are enjoying this victory. But... They're praising God because the devil's overcome. And then verse 11, it talks about how Christians overcame the devil. And it gives a three-step process. They overcame him. Notice the text in verse 11. The first thing, what does it say they did? They overcame by what? The blood of the Lamb. What does that mean? You overcome the devil by the blood of the Lamb. You remember Exodus chapter 12? God's going to pass through the land of Egypt, strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt against man and beast, against all the gods of Egypt, I'll execute judgment. I'm the Lord, verse 12. How were you kept from being destroyed by the Lord when he passed through? You had to have what? Blood on the doorpost. Well, the devil wants to do harm and opposition to God's people. Revelation 1.5 says about Jesus, to him who loved us and washed us from sins in his own blood. So that's the blood of the Lamb. What's the second thing that John says? They overcame him by the blood of the Lamb, by the what? What's the word of their testimony? We don't use that terminology a lot in churches of Christ, a testimony. But what does this mean, the word of their testimony? It's a key word in the book of Revelation, by the way. To testify, John actually calls this book the testimony about Jesus Christ. What's the word of their testimony? Okay, let's do it another way. What is a testimony? You say what happened. When you say what happened, what is their testimony then? What are they testifying about? You're going with the prophets. About what? What about the prophets? <laughs> they testified. Like, it started with the blood of the Lamb in Exodus, and then you got all the major and the minor prophets, so they testified that there's you know, the Savior coming, and Israel repent around. Okay, never mind. I'm not going to do that. There's still going to be a Savior. I don't know. The of their testimonies, they were, you know. I think that's at least a part of it. What's our responsibility? To go out into all the world and preach or proclaim the what? The gospel, which includes everything Nicole just mentioned. The prophets, the whole messianic storyline from Genesis. 
up to their present moment. And so the word of their testimony is the good news. In the midst of persecution, they hold fast to the blood of the Lamb. They've been forgiven of their sins. And the word of their testimony is they continue to preach and share the good news. And then the third thing is what? What about their lives? They love not their lives unto death. That is, they didn't count their lives of so much value that they were unwilling to give them over for the cause of Jesus Christ. Now, this isn't like they had a death wish or a martyr complex where they wanted to be killed for the cause of Jesus. In their mind, though, it just came down to if that happened, they weren't going to be afraid or worried about that. And so these are the ways that they overcame, and these are the ways that we overcome. The last thing from this in verse 12 is the devil knows that his time is short. Look at verse 12. Therefore, rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath because he knows that his time is short. So the devil is defeated. We don't have to worry about him. Morris says on this, the trouble the devil causes in the world is not necessarily because he's too strong, but because he is beaten and he knows that his time is short. And when we realize that, it'll give us courage to press on. The devil's doing damage and wreaking havoc, but the Bible says here that he knows his time is short. All right, let's go to 13 through 18. And when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. This is what Russell was mentioning a moment ago. If he can't get to God, he tries to get to us since he's been defeated. He persecutes us. The male child is Jesus. Couldn't get him. So the Bible says, when the dragon saw he had been thrown down to earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. But the woman was given two wings of the great eagle so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to the place where she is to be nourished for a time and times and half a time. The serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with the flood. But the earth came to the help of the woman and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured from his mouth. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and who hold to the testimony of Jesus, and he stood on the sand of the sea. Okay, so the devil is defeated, and as a result of being defeated, he decides to persecute the woman. Who did we say the woman was again? The church. And so can't get to the child. Instead, he tries to pursue and persecute the church. How does the child, when the devil earlier tried to, if you go back and look at Revelation 12 and notice, oh, where is it? Verse number four. Yeah, number four. What happens to the child when the devil tries to, verse four and verse five, tries to destroy the child? What happens to him before he Really in verse five. Yeah, caught up to God and to his throne. That's about Jesus dying and being resurrected and ascended couldn't get Jesus. Now for the Christians in Revelation 12 and in verse 14 when he tries to persecute Christians how are they protected? And the same thing is true about us. How are we protected? What does it say? The woman was given what? Yeah, given two wings. Go back to Exodus 19. And this is after um, Israel has been delivered from Egyptian bondage and notice what it says about what God did for them. Exodus 19 and verse number number 3 and number 4. While Moses went up to God, this is verse 3, the Lord called to him out of the mountain saying, Thus you will say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel, You yourself have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. So when Israel was persecuted, God brought her to safety through eagles' wings, and John picks up this same terminology and says, the dragon tries to persecute the child. 
but or the woman excuse me and says she's born on eagle's wings and brought to safety all right woman's given wings to escape. The earth helps the woman to escape the dragon. I think John continues with this Exodus type imagery because the serpent pours water out like a river. And if you think about the Egyptians and the Red Sea, God's people are protected from that. And then the devil tries to persecute the woman's offspring. But of course, she's kept safe. And the last thing we see here in verse 17, the dragon became furious with the woman and went to make war on the rest of her offspring and on those who keep the commandments of God. All right, let's go to the hearing and keeping part of Revelation 12, 1 through 17, before we get into chapter 13. Number one, how do we hear and keep this section? We need to remember that there is a real spiritual war taking place. Um, we need to look at the world from this vantage point. There is spiritual warfare going on, and we're a part of it. We're either, and by the way, John views everything in these binary terms, one of two lenses. Either you're on the side of the dragon or you're on the side of the Savior, but you're, you're on either side. And the devil wants to war with God's people, but God wants to win with his people. And Revelation 12 teaches us to look at life through the lens of there is a spiritual battle taking place. The things in Revelation 12 can't be seen through physical eyes. You don't see a dragon. You don't literally see a woman being pursued, but it's happening all the time, all around us, and we need to view life from that vantage point. Second, Jesus defeated the devil and was caught up into heaven. And so that means the same thing is true about us. The devil can't get to us. 1 Thessalonians 4, 17 says, One day we'll be caught up together with the Lord in the clouds to meet him in the air, and we will always be with the Lord. Jesus was protected from being destroyed by the serpent, and we can be protected. Just as he was caught up to heaven, those that follow him can enjoy the same faith. Number three. God lets the devil loose in the world to do his work. We don't see him visibly, but we clearly see his influence. I think we need a balanced theology of the devil. On the one hand, let's not give the devil too much credit. Let's not say the devil's doing all this stuff. Nobody can stop him. Just look at him running the world. But on the other hand, let's not be blind to the fact that he does wield an influence. 2 Corinthians 2.11, I think, is a verse that helps with that balance. Paul says, we are not ignorant of his devices. We should study the Bible about what the devil says, but the Bible never tells us to be afraid of it. In fact, there's no verse in the Bible that actually tells us to run from the devil. It says if you stand up to the devil and resist the devil, he'll flee from you. James 4, 4 through 8, really 4, verse 7. So if we resist the devil, he'll flee from us. We need a balanced view where we don't run up cozy with the devil, but at the same time we realize he does have influence and does do things in the world. Russell? You know, you can't say Win, but you see it's aftermath. Yeah. Uh, you can't actually see the devil, but you can see all the tools around you and the aftermath and destruction <coughs> that causes in our lives. You you can can't actually see it, but you can feel it. Uh, you can feel the the guilt, the pain, <coughs> uh, the things that he does to us. And all that is what you see in a kind of war, too. You see the death and destruction. We don't have to look too far. And we'll see the destruction and bad decisions. What the devil does to each one of us and our family. The devil doesn't have to win. All he has to, has to do is to get us to destroy ourselves. We do. We can. And we'll talk about overcoming him a little bit here in a minute. But I think that's true. We do see his effects, and we often yield to his devices when we shouldn't. The devil can be overcome. 
And everything Russell just said is true. But Revelation 12, 11 is important. Because everything in Revelation 12, 11, we have today, none of it is miraculous. It doesn't say they overcame because the apostles were in their company or because they had access to spiritual gifts that we no longer have access to. John gives a three-step process to overcome the devil. They overcame the devil by the blood of the Lamb, the word of their testimony, and they didn't love their lives unto death. And if we use that same three-step process, we can be successful as well. Cling to the blood of Jesus. You were baptized into Jesus Christ, Romans 6, 3, and 4. As you walk in the light, the blood of Jesus continues to cleanse you. That's our reality. The devil is an accuser of the brethren, Revelation 12 and verse 10. He wants to remind us of our sins, but Revelation 12, 11, we remind him of our redemption. We've been forgiven. The word of their testimony. Continue to proclaim and share the gospel, even in a world of unbelief. And then don't love your life unto death. Don't think too highly of yourself. And don't think about this life in this way. That there's so many things I really want to do and would love to do that I wouldn't continue to proclaim Christ or stand up against persecution because these things mean so much to me. I don't think the Christians in the first century were running toward persecution. But there was nothing that they valued more than their relationship with Jesus. And everything was on the chopping block for them. And it's got to be that same way for us. Victory only comes to those in Christ. They overcame in Jesus, and we look in vain for other ways to overcome the devil outside of Jesus. Um, I don't know. We say this. We understand this. Our victory is in the cross. But we need to make sure we really believe it and understand it, that we don't boast in anything else. We sing a song about that. I won't boast in anything. But sometimes we do boast in other things. We might unnecessarily or unknowingly boast in our Bible knowledge. We might boast in our church attendance. We might boast on our long spiritual track record or whatever our spiritual lineage is. None of those things are wrong in and of themselves. None of them are enough to justify themselves. None of them. Paul says in Romans 2 and 3, the only way a person can be justified with God is based on what Jesus has done. How much of your life and my life is spent pointing toward the cross and saying, that's why I'm in good standing with God. That's why I'm in a good relationship with God. I think we view that kind of as the kindergarten entry level of spiritual things. But Paul says it's the thing we must continually come back to. We are in good standing with God based on what Jesus has done. And the only way we achieve victory is in Jesus Christ. Boast in the cross. If people spent time around you and me, a good question to consider is, how often would they hear us boasting or glorying in the cross of Jesus Christ? That's what Paul says in Galatians 6.14. God forbid that I should glory in anything except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world's been crucified to me and I to the world. Paul was an expert in bragging on Jesus. And true Christianity and spiritual development is learning how to do that same thing. Learning how to become experts in bragging on what Jesus did for us. At first, when we haven't done this in a while, it seems strange to us. But over time, it'll become our natural reflex. Everything points back to Jesus. And that's the only way we can truly have victory. We can win in the wilderness. They did. The wilderness isn't a bad thing in the Bible. It's where God refines us and helps us. And then the last thing here is the devil's time is short and he knows that and we need to know that as well his time is short his influence is limited and if we keep the commandments this is what john says in verse 17 if you keep the commandments the devil will keep coming after you that's just the bottom line i read one time this man said if you never run into the devil it's probably because you're running in the same direction with him you should expect on occasion in life for things to kind of get up in you you should expect to run into difficulty and hardship because the devil is the lowercase g, God of this world. And if you keep pursuing the commandments of God, John says in verse 17, he's going to pursue those who keep the commandments of God. If you say, hey, my life's been pretty sweet. I don't really have any altercations with the devil. I don't face any temptation. There's really no problems. 
the devil tends to lead people along that he already has. And so we should expect to encounter him. Not be overcome by him, but we should expect to encounter him in our lives. All right, Revelation 13. I guess so. Yeah, we're in chapter 13 now. If you do need a handout, maybe some people came in late, just raise your hand, and I guess Brittany can get you one if you need a handout for chapter 13. Revelation 13 is where we find the two last major characters that stand in opposition to God's people. First, we met the dragon. We met the woman. Now we're going to meet two beasts. And when you add these two beasts together with the dragon, there's going to be a sea beast and a land beast. When you add them together, they kind of form their own little trinity of sorts. So we've got Father, Son, Holy Spirit. The Romans have the dragon, the sea beast, and the land beast. And so we'll see some of that opposition. When you think about the things taking place in the book of Revelation and the persecution that God's people are facing, what book comes to mind in the Bible where God's people were facing persecution and they had to stand up against it? Several times. In this book I'm thinking about, there are several scenes in different chapters where God's people are under the influence of say worldly individuals, ungodly folks, and they have to stand up against it, and they do every time. What book do you think about when you think about that? I think it's going to be helpful in chapter 13, too. What book comes to your mind when you think about God's people being persecuted? It's in the Old Testament, and continuously they won't cave in. They pass the test every time. Daniel. Daniel. Yeah, what happens in Daniel? Okay, so that's Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, Daniel chapter 3. If bow before the statue, or we're going to throw you where? In the fire, what do they do? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. We're not careful to answer you, O king. God we serve is able to deliver us. Even if not, we won't bow. But before that, in chapter 1, the first thing they run into is an issue about their diet. You remember that? And Daniel purposed in his heart, Daniel 1 and verse 8, I'm not going to defile myself with the king's food. Daniel wouldn't eat. Then there's the fire in Daniel chapter 3. And then what happens in Daniel chapter 6? Daniel has to stop praying or we're going to throw you into the what? Every time. They don't give in. What's interesting about each of those scenarios is God never stops them from going through the hardship. Like Daniel and his friends, they've got to eat their diet and we'll see what happens. They don't know beforehand that they're going to come out looking seven times fatter and better. But they go through with it. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, I don't know what you would have been thinking. If you got thrown in the fire and you were expecting to burn alive, and the next thing you know, you're fine. But God didn't tell them beforehand that they were going to be saved. They found out as they went through it. And then Daniel and the lion's den, by this point in Daniel's life, he's probably 80. That's a soft estimate. He's probably closer to 90 years old. He's been serving God for a long time. Daniel could have said, I'm going to bow out this one time. I mean, I've served God a long time. I've been through a lot of stuff. I'm an old man. I really, lions and all of that, I can't. Daniel went through it. And he's thrown in there with the lions. And then he's preserved by God. Every time God brought them through. And I think Revelation helps us to see some of that as well. This chapter in Revelation 13 is probably most famous for what we'll read at the end for the number 666. When I worked at Taco Bell, somebody came through and ordered something. We're like, hey, you're told it was 666. They're like, no, put aside a sour cream or something. <laughs> like, people are afraid of that number because, hey, it's the wicked magic number. Well, that's in Revelation 13, and we'll talk about why that's the case. So let's go ahead and begin Revelation 13, 1 through 4. And I saw a beast. Remember, at the end of 12, the devil was standing on the sea. He's still trying to persecute the woman and her offspring. Revelation 13, verse 1. I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads, with ten diadems on its horns, and blasphemous names on its head. The beast that I saw was like a leopard, and its feet were like a bear's, and its mouth was like a lion's mouth. And 
to it, the dragon gave his power and his throne and great authority. One of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed, and the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. They worshipped the dragon because he had given power and his authority to the beast, and they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast, and who can fight against it? All right, so after the dragon can't successfully defeat the woman or her offspring, he calls in a second party, which is this beast rising out of the sea. What do you know about the sea in the Bible? What is the sea depicted as in the Bible? A place of what? Wickedness, a lot of times, yes. So Isaiah 57, the last two verses in 20 and 21, Isaiah says, The wicked is like the troubled sea when it can't rest, whose waters cast up mire and dirt. There is no peace, says my God, for the wicked. Isaiah likens wicked people to the sea. So you read Revelation, you see a beast coming out of the sea. If you're John's readers, you're like, oh, this is trouble. So he sees this beast coming out of the sea. And how is this beast described? What is Tell me verse 2. What do you see about this beast that's described? Seven heads. Seven heads. That's good. Ten horns. Ten horns. I believe the seven heads deal with the seven hills of Rome. You'll see that in chapter 17, though, a little more clear. Ten horns. Ten is a number of completeness and power. What do the horns represent? Strength. Strength. Yeah, strength and power. What else about this beast? Crowns, okay. What about any animals for the beast? I'm, I'm thinking about verse two specifically. A leopard, a leopard. I mean, feet like a, a lion's mouth. In your Bible, everybody's Bible doesn't have this, but maybe your Bible has cross references. Whose Bible has that, by the way? Like it tells you. Look at other verses. Maybe it's in the center. Maybe it's down at the bottom. Does your Bible have anything like that? The cross-references are put there by men. They think, hey, this verse appeals to this. It's arbitrary. But if we learn how to use it, sometimes it's helpful. So you're like, how do you know when this applies to this Old Testament reference? Sometimes it's helpful. Does anybody have a cross-reference in verse 2 in their Bible? What do you have? I'm sure if you have cross-references, there's got to be one in verse 2. I'm almost sure there is. Daniel 7, verse 6. Because the imagery that John uses, go to Daniel chapter 7. It comes directly out of Daniel 7, really verses 1 through 8, where Daniel's describing four kingdoms that would eventually be against the people of God. And he there is talking about Babylon, Persia, Greece, and Rome. John just uses all of that same terminology and says, hey, it's like this with this beast. So Daniel 7, and we'll just drop down to verse 6. Look at Daniel 7 and verse 6. After this I looked, and behold, another like a leopard with four wings of a bird on its back, and the beast had four heads, and dominion was given to it. After this, I saw the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful, exceedingly strong. It had great iron teeth. It devoured and broke in pieces, stacked with its feet, with its left foot. It was different from all the beasts, and before it, it had ten horns. And then in verse 8, he talks about the horns that he saw. But if you read Daniel 7, really 1 through 8, you see him mentioning all of these creatures. The first one in verse Number four is like a lion, and then he sees one like a bear in verse number five. John uses this same terminology. Who is the beast that John's describing in Revelation 13? The Roman Empire. Yes, Travis says the Roman Empire. Somebody else said it too. The beast has all of this imagery to describe one of God's people. Um, and so he talks about the beast. And then he says that this beast was mortally wounded in verse number 3. Look at verse 3 of Revelation 13. 
One of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed, and the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. I think this is kind of like a mock resurrection. Remember I told you, dragon, sea beast, and land beast is kind of like a parody to the Trinity, and this wounding of this beast and then being healed is like maybe Rome was on the ropes occasionally and suffering some hardship, but every time it looked like the Roman Empire was about to go out of business, hey, they were healed and they bounced back on their feet. And so the whole world, it says in verse number four, well, verse number three, its mortal wound was healed and the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast and they worshiped the dragon. So the beast is the Roman Empire. John sees the whole world marveling at the beast in verse three. What does that tell you that the whole earth is marveling at this beast? What does that tell us about this beast? It's got everybody's attention. And what else? How many people are doing this, according to John? Everybody. 1 John 5, 19 says the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. So the Bible talks about not following the crowd in places like Exodus 23 and verse 2. Don't follow a multitude to do evil. Jesus says the broad way many people are going in there at, you'll fall into a ditch. Why is that easier said than done? I mean, we talk to every camp I've been to, you go to youth rallies, you're going to hear 1 Corinthians 15, 33. Be not deceived, evil companions corrupt what? Good morals. And like, hey, you've got to watch out for peer pressure. But unless you're Methuselah, you've got peers. And there's going to be pressure. Everybody has peer pressure. Why is it easier said than done to say, hey, don't follow the crowd? I mean, you could read right over this. The whole world was following this beast, and they marveled and they worshiped the beast. And we think, well, I wouldn't have done that if I was there. But what's, um, why is that easier said than done? We don't want to seem weird. We want to fit in. What else? <coughs> it's easier. Why is it easier? Nobody's going against you. Yeah, nobody's going against you. We all want to be liked, don't we? We want to be accepted by other people. And sometimes we're willing to cave in and go along with the flow. Francis Chan and his wife, they wrote a book on marriage. And I don't know why he worked this into the book. But he talked about people that were in churches at the time of the Holocaust. And this one man told a story one time about being in his small church building and teaching his Sunday school class. And he would hear the trains going by as they had these Jewish children on there. And he would hear them screaming as they went by. And he says, you know, every time that happened, I would just tell the children to sing louder. It was easier to just put it out of his mind. And Chan says, you can read that and think to yourself, hey, that wouldn't have been me. I would have stood up and did something. He said, but what we should do is think about how we're standing up to evil in our own current time. And then he says, every time you read about something in history and you say, this is a heinous act, I wouldn't have done that. He said, you probably would do something akin to what you're doing right now. And a lot of us probably would have just said, just sing louder. Because it's easier. When everybody's doing it, the whole world's worshiping this beast. And you come up as a Christian, the whole world's following the Roman Empire. It's hard to go against it. Peter just knew, though all of these betray you, I never will. And then a little maiden girl says, you're with them. He says, I've never heard of him before in my life. And starts to curse and swear with an oath. That wasn't who Peter really was, but in the heat of it, when everybody's persecuting Jesus and all of this commotion's going on, he just shriveled up. And so we need to appreciate that it's hard to stand up against evil, but it can be done. Verse 4 says, not only do they follow the beast, but they also do what? They worship the dragon because he gave authority to the beast. Um, and they worship the beast saying, who is like the beast and who can fight against it? People weren't just living in the Roman Empire, but they were actually worshiping the emperor of Rome. Domitian and others wanted to be viewed as God, and they wanted to receive 
worship. This says to you and me, everybody in the world worships. Everybody does. I had a friend one time who, well, he was my younger brother's friend, and he claimed to be a Christian. At one point, something happened, and he said, I'm no longer a Christian. And he went public with this on social media, and I sent him a message, and I said, well, you're no longer a Christian. Who do you worship now? And he was like, what do you mean? And I said, well, people don't stop worshiping. They just switch gods. Everybody by nature. You're going to worship someone or something. I know people think they graduate beyond Christianity and it's like, well, I'm not worshiping anymore. I don't do those kinds of things. I'm no longer religious. But they just switch gods. Maybe their new god becomes civic, you know, causes. Maybe it becomes the environment or some political or social cause. But everybody worships something or someone. And these folks, they bow down and they worship the beast. They saw the wealth, the power, and the prestige, and they worshiped. If you go to Isaiah 44, we won't do it for time's sake, but 9 through 20, Isaiah talks about the folly of idolatry. Going out into the woods, cutting down a tree, fashioning it with your own hands, and falling down and worshiping it. And that's what people do. What does this question show us about how they think about the beast? Look at verse 4 at the end. Who is like the beast and who can fight against it? What does this tell us about what they thought about the beast? They had a lot of faith in it. In the Roman Empire as a whole. And what else? What was that? Can't be defeated. This question is interesting because it's a question Israel often asks about God. Look at 1 Samuel chapter 2. 1 Samuel chapter 2, and this is Hannah's prayer. 1 Samuel chapter 2 and verse 2. First Samuel chapter 2 and verse 2, Hannah says, There is none holy like the Lord, for there is none beside you. And then, there is no rock like our God. Go to Exodus chapter 15. Exodus chapter 15, and notice verse 11. This is how they praise God after they've come out of the Red Sea. Exodus 15, 11, Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness and awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? And these people see the greatness of the Roman Empire, and they say, Who is like this? Who is like the beast, and who can fight against it? Does this sound familiar, this who is like the beast, and who can fight against it? I know things in Revelation took place in the first century, and John says they're shortly going to come to pass, but there is some present-day application. And this question is designed to shame people that would think otherwise. And I hear stuff like this all the time today. It's not in these words exactly, but it goes something like this. If you disagree with the masses, if you disagree with most people in the current culture, there's this question basically of like, are you stupid? Like everybody believes this. Surely you don't think this is wrong. Who is like the beast? Who would fight against this? Don't you see everybody thinks this is acceptable? This is how everybody lives their life now. Revelation 13, 4 comes up, and it's a rhetorical question. They're not expecting any answers to this question. They're just saying, nobody's crazy enough to fight against Rome. Everybody's bowed to Rome. You might as well get in line. And we live in a culture that is shouting Revelation 13, 4 Christians. Who is like the beast? Everybody's going along with this. And you don't want to be on the wrong side of history when it comes to morality and when it comes to being just inclusive and when it comes to being most emotionally just relative. Everything goes. Everybody's doing it. Just go with the flow. What's the real answer to the question in Revelation 13, 4? Who is like the beast and who can fight against it? Every nation that gets strong enough is like the beast, but God can fight against all of them. God can fight against the beast. 
in Revelation 5, 9 through 13, the Christians sing their own song and they talk about the land that can't be overcome and that can't be defeated. Both sides have their spiritual, you could say spiritual mascots of sorts. The world in Rome is saying, hey, we got our beast, and the Christian is saying, we got the lion from the tribe of Judah. The Christians know that their God can defeat the beast, but the world really has no idea. And so next week we'll pick up with our study and see the second beast that John introduces us to. But thanks for a good Bible class. Thanks for your participation.